awesome. We are going to be in the book of 1 Peter. As I mentioned last week, we're starting this little three-week series. We're in week two of this little three-week series called Hope and Holiness, which is really just a gaze into or an exploration of 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and I was talking about the, these words, hope and holiness, and kind of what they mean in, in our understanding of them, and really how that translates to really being different from what the biblical picture of those words mean as well. And we talked about the idea that if, if I were to take each one of you and ask you to define the word hope, most likely we'd come up with about as many different definitions as there are people in this room. And the same probably goes for the word holiness. But the reality is, is that these words are really important, life-changing, transforming words in the Bible and that we need to understand them. And, and the book of First Peter, or letter really, is a call to life. It's a letter that unpacks for all believers, both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, what the Christian life should be and how it should be lived. Now, we know the book of 1 Peter was written to believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. And we kind of explored what that meant, that sandwiched between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and what is now kind of modern-day Turkey um, were believers, and they were living in, in small groups and gatherings, and the letter of 1 Peter was really written to all of them. And unlike other New Testament letters, 1 Peter wasn't written to address a specific heresy or problem or issue. It wasn't written to a specific church, like the church in Rome or the church in Ephesus. It was written to believers, and it was meant to be circulated, and it was meant to be passed around, and it was a picture of life. In fact, 1 Peter actually addresses a lot of the facets of the Christian life. It, it addresses suffering and marriage and trust. It addresses a, a large gamut of the things that we kind of run into as, uh, as Christians. And it's, it's an amazing book. But the backbone of this book are those words, hope and holiness. And we explored this first few, the first few verses last week and really unpacked what that word hope means. And we're going to get into that a little bit more today. But, but really, we're going to gaze at the word holiness for a little bit today as we kind of move through that first chapter in the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to grab it and open up to 1 Peter. If you don't have one, we've got some back here on these tables. Um, you're welcome to grab them. The way these Bibles work is that if you don't own one, we want you to keep it. If you don't have a Bible, hang on to it. If you know someone that needs it, um, give it away. We will always get more. And uh, if not, you're welcome to leave it and use it each week. But bring your Bible if you have one, because we will be in it every single week. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse um, 13 this morning. Before we get in there, I want to give you a quick little kind of um, context check, if you will, um, based on some things that I said last week that I think we really need to keep in mind as we read this text. In order to understand the depth of this text and the impact that it has on our lives, we really have to be able to understand it in terms of its context because it makes a lot more sense that way. And there's a few important things we have to understand about the context of this letter in order to fully grasp its depth. And the first is that this letter that was written to these believers, these scattered believers all over Asia Minor, was that persecution was real. These believers woke up every day with the fact that they might die today for the God they claimed to believe in. The persecution wasn't something that happened in a distant land. It was their reality. That if I claimed to follow Jesus, if I called myself a Christian, that today could cost me my very life. Now, persecution had yet to hit its all-time high, but it was escalating quickly, and it was a hostile environment. And so to follow, follow Christ was not something that people did culturally. It was... Um, 
in the reality of, of a life and death kind of situation. The second thing is that this was not a Christian culture. You know, you and I living in Oklahoma City, we really live in a Christian culture, even though morally we may say, eh, but the reality is we do. We live in a Christian culture. We very much are, are still in an environment where people are encouraged to go to church, um, where you're not going to be fired if you say you, you follow Jesus, if you put a bumper sticker on your car, you know, people aren't going to push it off into the lake. I mean, we don't live in a real kind of environment of persecution. We live in a really kind of a Christian culture, which wasn't the case for these early believers. In fact, the ratio to Christians to non-Christians or believers to non-believers was incredibly low. All right, was incredibly low. The third thing we have to keep in mind is that the church was really different, right? I mean, this kind of goes without saying. We know this, but it, it bears repeating. The church did not exist as it exists today, right? It didn't exist. There wasn't, it wasn't a physical building or a gathering place. There wasn't some kind of red adobe building on the corner that had that, like, little slogan. I actually saw this one on Friday as I was driving home from this thing. It says, summer hot, want to go swimming, need a lifeguard, ours walks on water, whatever Baptist church or whatever church it was, and I thought, really? <laughs> That's what my thought is? I need a lifeguard that walks on water? I'd really just have one that swims would be fine. Would be. But I, I thought, you know, there's not some kind of, of church with its little saying. There's not a 12-week DVD series by Rick Warren on how to become a disciple. There was no divorce care. There was no um, young children's program. There was no youth ministry. The church existed for two reasons. One, to gather together in worship, and two, because it was necessary. These believers gathered together and they shared resources and life. They were gathered together in small groups of people, sometimes underground, both literally and figuratively, and they met out of necessity. They desired to worship and they, they met because they shared resources. And they'd circulate letters like the letter that Peter wrote and they clung to every word. They'd circulate them amongst these, these small groups of believers, and they, these words were incredibly important. They didn't have a Bible that was bound in, in leather and 500 different versions. They circulated letters from the apostles, and they clung to the words. So the picture of what the early Christians were facing is very different from what you and I are facing. Um, but it's important for us to keep that in mind, because these words, while they do apply to you and I, we have to understand to whom they are written. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, as we sort of keep those things in the back of our mind um, before we read the text, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, <clears throat> God, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, God, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that, God, your word is real, and that we know that having an encounter with your word is having an encounter with you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would move in our hearts God, that you would begin to stir us and that you would open our eyes to your truth. Take just a moment right where you sit and just ask God for the next moments to speak to your heart. And pray for someone beside you. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. Just pray that God would move in them. God, we love you and we thank you deeply for your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the first part of, of 1 Peter 1 is really a call to life. It's a call to 
um, begin to live. It's a picture of what the, the follower of Christ looks like when we begin to put our feet on the ground. It's a call to do more than to simply exist. These next few verses that we're going to look at today are, are really a, a call, in a sense, to a transformed mindset. They're really a call to change the way that we think. It's a call to a radical and maybe new way of thinking about the Christian life. He, he's going to explain to us that setting up a life that follows Jesus begins with how we think about ourselves, our God, and the world around us. And so as Peter gets ready to address that, we need to keep in mind that part of the, the challenge of following Jesus is getting my mind in a place where I say, Jesus, I am ready to follow you. First Peter chapter 1 verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Listen to these three short verses again. I just want you to hear it one more time. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So Peter transitions to this portion of text by saying this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now you have to imagine yourself as an early century believer having these letters read to you or circulated amongst your small gathering of people and you hear these words from the apostle Peter, that guy that has spent time with Jesus and he says to prepare your minds for action. And I find this really fascinating because for most of us as Christians, as believers, we're really not interested in the idea of action. In fact, if we're really honest, most of us don't want our Christian lives to see a lot of action. Because if our Christian lives see a lot of action, we recognize that that may cost us. If I have little action, it requires little faith, little trust, little reliance, and most, most likely little attention from the world around me. But Peter says to prepare your minds. In other words, get ready for the fact that following Christ is more than something that you just articulate. But following Christ becomes a life of action. You know, we live in a culture where Christianity is, is very casual. You can join churches because you want to get married in sanctuaries or because that's where your family went or because that's what's really trendy. We're Christians sometimes because we know we're not Catholic or because we think we believe in God or, you know, at least that's what we want to articulate. And so we use the label of Christian and church very differently than it would have been used here. But Peter says to prepare your minds for action. I was really thinking about the fact that I don't prepare my, my mind for thinking about living a Christian life that is action-oriented, that is behavior and response-driven, that is obedient in how it lives. But I very much prepare my mind so that I don't have to go there. But Peter's looking at these disciples and he's saying, these followers of Christ, and he's saying, get ready because the Christian life is going to cost you. 
And for those believers, they knew that when they woke up today, it may very well cost them their life. You didn't claim you were a Christian unless you were willing to die for it because that's most likely what it was going to translate to for you. I don't know about you and your life, but is your Christian life, is it action-oriented? Not like some kind of action movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger's doing all kinds of amazing things, but, but action in terms of like, am I really ready to live what I say? Am I really ready to trust Jesus when I have to? Am I really ready to love that person who I, I say I love with my words? Am I really ready to do that with my very life? When I know, understand and know about a God that says I'm forgiven and free, am I really willing to love my mom or my brother or my sister or my family members with that same love? Am I really willing to sacrifice in a way that is action-oriented? You know, and an overused metaphor for how we oftentimes look at our Christian life is the idea that most of us, we treat it like a sporting event, you know, where, where we are up in the stands and we're, we're glad to be there. We can get a glimpse of what's happening, but, but we really don't actually want to play, right? We just want to see it. We just want to be present enough to say, I was there. But, but the fo- life of following Christ is not really about that, right? I mean, it's really about saying, God, I want to be used by you today. And so Peter says, you better get your mind ready Because a life of following Christ is one of movement. It's one of action. And for you and I, that call is exactly the same, which is we better prepare our minds because if you say you're going to follow Jesus, chances of him calling you to that are extremely high. Because if we're going to claim to follow him, he's going to challenge us to walk where he did. So Peter says, prepare your minds for action. A lot of us do a lot of preparing our minds for theology and study and stuff, which is great, but the Christian life is more than just about what happens in our head. It's how that translates into our feet and into our lives and into our words. So we prepare our minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope. You remember last week, if you were here, we talked about this idea of the word hope and how You and I use the word hope mainly to express things of uncertainty, like I hope I'm going to be able to make it to church on time, or I hope I'm going to win the lottery, or as I said last week, I hope Texas Tech wins the national championship. In fact, actually, I got one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. No offense to my wonderful family, but somebody today who loves me dearly and who I love even more now gave me two tickets to the Oklahoma-Texas Tech game. I have them right here, so it is real. These are legit, (laughs) right? Okay, I hope that I'm going to go down there and I'm going to sit in a whole bunch of like Oklahoma fans because of course you get tickets and you sit right in the middle of other OU fans and I'm going to golf clap, you know, because I don't want to get beat up or anything, but I'm going to golf clap, but I really hope, I really hope the tech wins, but I'm expressing it with an incredible amount of uncertainty, right? I mean, that's really the way we use the word hope. We use the word hope to say things like, I hope that my dad will will, uh, be healed from his cancer or I hope that my mom will we'll make it through this struggle at work, or I hope that I get that promotion. We use the word to express things that are uncertain. We're really hoping for a good outcome, but we're expressing uncertainty. The Bible, while it uses the word on occasion that way, really the Bible uses the word hope to express certainty. 
In the first few verses of 1 Peter, that's exactly how he uses the word, to express that which we're confident and that which we are hopeful will happen and we know will happen. It's this expectant kind of confidence. And that's certainly how Peter uses it here. He says to set your hope, your confident expectation on what? On the grace to be given to you. In other words, it's not saying, as a believer, life is going to be pretty unstable and pretty hard, but you can, you can be you know, kind of rest assured that something better may happen. It's not what Peter's saying at all. He's actually saying, life is uncertain and unstable, and I can't promise you what will happen if you follow Christ, but you can set your expectant hope on the fact that this grace is real and it is yours. And when Jesus Christ is revealed, it is the truth. It is the constant. And we explored last week the idea that hope and trust are really kind of hand in hand. That most of us approach our, our Christianity with sort of this little outsourced optimism where we kind of look at it. We don't want to hope for too much because we don't want to be disappointed when it doesn't happen. So we don't put too much hope in the things of God because if it doesn't happen, then I won't be disappointed which really isn't how the Bible uses the word hope at all. The Bible uses the word hope to express the confidence and the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ and the reality of God. Basically, these believers gather together realizing that today may be the last day that they live or that they may face some kind of persecution that was so real that I can't count on anything in this world, that I may be betrayed and sold out and maybe even killed. But what I can count on is that the grace of Jesus Christ is real and it is mine. Peter says, set your hope, your expectant confidence on the grace of Christ. In other words, if you don't know that anything in this world is real, you can rest assured in the fact that this truth of God is more real than the air that we breathe. <clears throat> I can trust that. And most of us don't look at our Christian lives that way, though. We look at our Christian lives as, as hopeful, wishful thinking, the same way that we approach the word hope in our own life, which is, I'm going to believe in God and just sort of hope that when I die, all this is real. What if we were confident, trusting, and we were saying, God, I am all in. I'm all in because I don't know what this world will give me. I don't even know if I have a job tomorrow, but you will never change. You are the same yesterday and today and forever, and I am confident that in a world that is crazy and unpredictable, that you are my constant hope and expectation. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you, which would have been such a powerful word for these believers. Put your hope on Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You know, we see this idea popping up in Scripture all the time, this idea of not conforming. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 12 to talk about not conforming to the world around us. And, 
And you and I often use the word conform in the same way, right? Conform means to adapt probably my life to the life of someone else or something else, either morally or ethically or, or whatever. So I will conform to the, the way that my company works with this thing, or I want to you know, conform or I want to adapt myself to taking on this sort of picture. And usually it applies to some kind of ethics or morals when we really talk about it with our life, which is kind of how Paul uses it. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world which is really how we think about the word, but it's not really what Peter is saying here. What Peter's saying is he's saying, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. See, notice Peter's not saying, don't just, you know, not do what the world does, right? So the world lives this way, don't conform to that. He's not really saying that. He's actually saying, don't conform to the evil desires that you had. Now, you may be asking yourself, what's the real difference? Because technically, we're called to do both, which is right. But there's a huge difference. Because Peter's saying, listen, before you met Jesus, your life was an absolute mess. You were in desperate need of rescue, and you were dying because you were covered in sin. Your life was sinful. And as we've talked about multiple times in here, that means death. You were without hope and absolutely lost. Your Your life is an utter mess without Jesus. And Peter says, don't conform, not just to the world around you, but to the way you used to think and live before you met Christ. See, most of us think that not conforming is sort of a, uh, a moral way of looking at our life. If I can just not act as bad as those heathens, you know, those heathens that live immorally, those heathens that do things that I would never think about doing, if I can just somehow not conform to that, then that's what God wants for me, to live different than the world. So they live this way, I live that way. And the goal of the Christian life is to somehow live this way in the middle of that. That's what we really think about, which isn't altogether untrue at all, but it's not really what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, kind of forget about that for a moment and remember who you were before you met Jesus You lived a life of sin, and he calls it in the middle of ignorance. You were sinful, and you were a mess. So don't worry about not conforming to them. Don't just try and set your life different from the people around you, as if that's some kind of religious goal. But instead, do your best to live redeemed. Live the fact that you are a new creation. Don't conform to the way you used to think, to the way you used to live. Live as a new creation. And I find this to be really powerful because it's a, it's a different way of thinking about my life. Because if my goal is just not to live morally unacceptable, but to live different in the world, then, then what really does that say about my life in Christ? But what if my goal was to worry less about how the world lived, instead say, Trip, I don't want to live the way I lived when I lived in sinful ignorance. I want to live redeemed that God has so changed me and challenged me that I don't want to fall back into the trap that once had my life that was built around distrust, that was built around selfishness and self-centeredness, that was built around me. Who cares what they're doing? I don't want to be that man again. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, don't conform and fall back into the trap of who you were. 
Because think about these believers. I mean, it wasn't like they were from generations of Christians where your family were believers and their parents were believers and their parents were believers. These are first-generation Christians. Most of these people had been saved within the past year, if not a few months. They couldn't call dad or their favorite pastor and say, hey, I'm really struggling. They lived every day with the reality that their faith in Christ was brand new. And Peter says, don't conform to the way you used to think and live. In other words, quit using the world as your standard by which you measure your Christian life. I'm not as bad as, at least I'm not as bad as he is or she is. The standard for your Christian life should be sinfulness and what it means to live redeemed. That every day we should wake up and say, God, today is a day I don't want to go back to thinking the way I used to think before I knew you. That God, today is a day I don't want to get caught in that same trap and behavior that I was when I was living in the middle of a sinful life, when I was selfish and self-centered. Today's the day I just want to live for you. I'm not measuring my Christian life based on what the world does. I'm measuring my Christian life based on what Jesus did for me. And that's what Peter's reminding these believers. He's saying, don't conform. Forget about the world. Don't conform to your sinfulness that was so steeped in your life. I was really convicted by that this week, thinking about how often I take my life and I just sort of measure it up against the world and I give myself a pat on the back because I'm not doing crack or drugs or whatever. Somehow I've reached some kind of moral, you know, round of applause for myself because I've, I've managed to live in the middle of the world and not really look too much like it. The reality is the self-centeredness and sinfulness that was a part of my life before I knew Christ is still running through my veins. The daily I got to wake up and say, Jesus, today I want to live like you set me free. And I want to love the world in that same manner. I just find that fascinating. As obedient children, I conform to the evil desires you had. Listen to how he wraps this up, and we're almost done. Verse 15. <clears throat> but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. But just as he who called you, Jesus, is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Most likely, this is a, uh, a quote from the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, 44, 45, somewhere right in there. It's a quote from the book of Leviticus where, where God is giving Israel the, the challenge and the call to be different. The word that's being used there in Leviticus um, is a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word means something really different than what we understand the word holiness to be. The Hebrew word is the word kadosh, and really what it means is it means to be set apart for a special purpose. Now, we use the word holiness to think about some kind of moral or perfect living, something that's only attainable by God. And we kind of find these verses really strange. So if Jesus or God is holy and they're perfect, and yet they're calling me to be holy, can I really be perfect and moral and holy? Well, if we look at the word holiness to mean that, we'll, we'll know. I mean, morally perfect. No, I mean, I've probably sinned 50 times since I came here today. So that's done. But what does the word holy really mean? Well, it's the word kadosh, and it means to be set apart. And if we understand the word holiness to be set apart for a special purpose, what we get is this. It's not that God is calling us to be morally upright and totally perfect. It's that God is calling us to remember that we have been set apart to be used by him 
for his glory, for his purpose. Be holy means be set apart. It doesn't mean go out and live some kind of perfect moral life so that everybody looks at you and says, that guy's never done anything wrong. He must be holy or he must be following God. It just means to say, God, in all of my nasty brokenness, in the middle of my sinfulness, in the middle of who I know I am, I recognize that you are calling me to be used by you, and I am set apart. Now, certainly we're called to live in a way that does the best we can morally, but we're all going to fall on our face. But holiness, to be set apart, kadosh, really just means God can use me for his incredible purposes. You notice in, in Scripture, things are holy because either God's presence is in them or God declares them holy. I mean, really the main two ways something's holy. If God is there, it is holy. You look at all the Old Testament. The ark, the tabernacle, the temple, right? The burning bush was holy. God was in it. And also when God declares something holy, Moses is standing there before the burning bush and, and God says, Moses, take off your shoes because the place you're standing is what? Holy ground. Was it holy because the dirt was morally perfect? No, it's holy because God declared it holy because it was set apart by God for a special purpose. And that special purpose was what God was doing with Moses at that moment. It was God's presence. So when Peter's reminding the believers to be holy, he's reminding them to be set apart. He's reminding them of the purpose. He's saying, you're not to do this on your own. You're not some kind of renegade that has to live the perfect Christian moral life. He says, just recognize that you've been set apart for God to do something tremendous with. And if you look at your Christian life from that standpoint, if we really look at our Christian lives as, I'm not some kind of one-man renegade evangelical person that has to charge the middle of this world morally with my sword upright in the air, showing them that I can live perfect. But instead, I just said, God, I don't want to conform to who I used to be because you have set me apart for something spectacular, a holy purpose. And the action becomes God's to use you and not yours to use God. See, when we associate the word holiness with moral perfect living, it becomes my right, my banner to carry, my flag to wave. When we recognize holiness as God using me, set apart for him, it becomes God that uses a broken vessel. I mean, God made his presence in a bush. God put his presence in places that we wouldn't normally expect the presence of God. Yet God says, be holy, be set apart, and I will use you. You see what Peter's doing here? He's challenging the believers to have a transformed mindset that their Christian lives were going to be about action. That they better prepare themselves because if you're going to say you're going to follow Christ, Jesus is going to call you to things, to obedience and to follow him. To set your expectant, confident hope in that which is real. The only thing that's predictable. That's the truth of God. To not conform to the way you used to live before you met Jesus. Quit worrying about taking your moral standard as that which happens outside of your life. But set your hope, your confident expectations on the idea that God has transformed me and redeemed me and he'll use me. He set me apart. So the question becomes for you and I, is this really how we live? Is this what our mind 
thinks? Is this our, our way of thinking? Do I think about my own Christian life this way? Am I ready to be used by God? I mean, truly. Have I prepared myself for what's going to happen when I say, Jesus, I am yours? Am I a spectator in this Christian life? Or am I ready to say, God, use me? Have I worried so much about keeping my life out of the moral fray of society that I've forgotten that what God is really calling me to is to not fall back to who I was, but instead live redeemed? And in the middle of all that, recognize that holiness is not unattainable because holiness isn't moral perfection. That's a recognition that I've been set apart to be used by God. In that sense, holiness becomes totally attainable because it's not me. It's God using me. We change our mind. We think differently. We can impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ first by allowing God to impact our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place that you've given us a call that is a brand new mindset, a new way of thinking about our own life in Christ. God, we pray that um, even now you'd be challenging us, that most of us probably at some point or time, God, have kind of relegated our Christian life to a series of phrases and words that happen to work culturally, but God, are very ill-prepared for a life that follows you truthfully. And God, I pray that you would challenge us to be prepared to be men and women and children of action. And I pray, God, that you would prepare us for that task. And that, God, as we think about what it means to be holy, we think about what it means to be set apart, to be used by an incredible purpose, by an incredible God. That requires no perfect action of my own, but just a heart that says, God, use me. Lord, I confess that I don't think this way. It's not natural for me to think this way. My mindset is so focused on me that I very rarely, God, see what you're doing around me. So Lord, take us and change our mindset. Give us a new way of thinking and equip us to be men and women that are prepared for a life that follows Jesus. Set apart and ready to be used. In Jesus' name, amen.